Hey, thanks for checking out the weekly podcast from Chattanooga Valley Baptist Church. We hope you found this episode to be challenging and encouraging. Now, let's turn our attention to this week's sermon from Pastor Brian Carroll. There's an interesting word that gets tossed around a lot today. You may have heard it being said that that was a fail. Probably around the younger generation, you've heard that word. Um, On one hand, the word fail is used to describe an an inability to meet certain minimum standards. For example, if you didn't study for the test, your teacher might hand you back a piece of paper with red ink all over it, and you would say that you failed the test. If you didn't reach a particular objective or goal, you might say that you failed to reach said goal. However, in today's vernacular, fail is used to describe when something didn't go as planned, particularly, specifically, when it ends in some sort of unmitigated disaster. Depending on how bad the disaster is, it would be described as what? An epic fail. Some of you are, 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 are hip today. Thanks to the internet... There are far more than enough videos and pictures for you to go home today and entertain yourself all afternoon. I, however, couldn't find any that were appropriate enough to show because of the bleeped out curse words and the, uh, uh, those sort of things. However, on your own internet and your own time, uh, you, 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 uh, viewer beware, I'll say it that way. I will say most of the time a fail involves somebody breaking something very expensive or getting hurt. The best fails, the epic fails, usually involve both. Uh, There was even a conference, I learned about this uh, in, in looking up the word fail. There was a conference for pastors that was called Epic Fail Pastors. Oh, well, this could be interesting. So I... Clicked around a little bit to see where the closest Epic Fails for Pastors conference was, and I couldn't find one that was close enough, so, so I, I, didn't, I didn't go or sign up to go. But apparently the Epic Fail Pastors conference is where pastors can get together and learn from each other's failures and mistakes, which actually sounds like a pretty good idea. While using the word fail is shorthand for failure, and it's certainly taken on viral uh, use in our social media-driven and our click-driven culture, the reality, and we may just change the word from this point forward, the reality is, is that we've been using the word fail like this for the better part of four centuries. So if you find yourself using the word, you need to understand that you are connecting with your historical past. Thomas Burton was an English politician in the 17th century. In his diary from 1656, we find that he used the word exactly the same way that we use the word today. So it's not new and hip. It's actually kind of old and, uh, and antiquated, although he wasn't necessarily referring to a viral social media post in 1656. Last week, I began our time together with a video of a ballerina who was active at age 77. Last week in our series, we talked about the the remarkable creation of human beings, the, the crowning achievement of God's creative work. We spent... a a considerable amount of time looking at the instructions that God gave to man. God made a very good creation. 
He placed it under the stewardship of, of, the, of mankind created in his very own image. Now that should have resulted, note should have, it should have resulted in an ever-expanding garden tended to by an ever-growing human population bearing God's image. What God put together was actually a recipe for paradise. Perfect people tending to a very good creation, following God's instructions. But today, we find ourselves in a creation it doesn't always feel very good. We have raging wildfires and deadly storms. We have earthquakes and tsunamis and volcanoes. We have cancers, viruses, heart attacks. We have birth defects and genetic disorders. We have terrorists and rapists, thieves, human traffickers. That raises some interesting questions. What happened to this very good creation? And what happened to the crowning achievement of God's creative work? Well, simply enough, it can be summarized with a four-letter word, fail. If you've got your Bibles today, we're going to be in Genesis chapter 3. The third part of this walk through the Bible in 16 key verses. And while I don't believe in taking verses out of context, we are trying to narrow down our focus to these, these important verses. But in our reading this morning, we will read all of the first part of Genesis chapter 3. If you would, and you're able, would you please stand with me in reverence to the reading of God's word from Genesis chapter 3, beginning in verse 1. Now, the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. And he said to the woman, Did God actually say, You shall not eat of any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, We may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said, You shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it lest you die. But the serpent said to the woman, You will not surely die, for God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, and that it was a delight to the eyes, and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate and she also gave some of it to her husband, who was with her, and he ate. And then the eyes of both were opened, and they knew that they were naked. And they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. Father, I thank you for your word. And though we read what is perhaps the most tragic text in our Bibles, we pray, God, that we might learn today from their failure in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thank you. You can be seated. You know, this passage is one that we are all too familiar with. And I don't, I don't know about you, but when I get to a familiar passage, sometimes it's easy to just, to just rush through it. I know what happens here. 
I'll just skip through this, this section because I've read this before and I'll move on to something that I'm not quite as, as familiar with. However, as we find ourselves familiar with its content, we need to not forget how important, how foundational this passage is to our understanding of the world and our understanding of the overarching message of the Bible. This would be declared in today's culture the first epic fail of the human race. And it is an epic fail that continues to plague the human race and will continue to plague the human race until Jesus returns and restores all things to their original order. We will deal with the cost of this mistake until Jesus ends it for good. And as we think about this fail, this, this tragedy, it's important that we go back and understand some of the context of, of this passage. For example, if you go back and you read through Genesis 1 and 2, you will notice that, that God only gave Adam and Eve one negative restriction. Now, there were positive instructions, but he only gave them one negative restriction. God is, is so good that he gave them one restriction in light of the tremendous freedom that they had. I, I can't imagine what the freedom in the garden must have been like. you got one rule, guys. Here's your one rule. There's a tree in the middle of the garden. Don't eat of that fruit. That's your one rule. While you're here, be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth, tend the garden. But your one rule is don't touch that tree. Now, that's foreign for us today. Because we live in a day and time where all we know are rules and regulations. You had to pay attention to rules and regulations in order to even get to church today. You had to know how fast you could drive or perhaps should drive. You had to know who had to yield at a stop sign. You had to know what to do when the light was green or when the light was yellow or when the light was red. Most of you parked in parking spaces. I haven't gone out to check. Some of y'all are a little squirrely in your parking, I've noticed. But most everybody parked in a parking space. That is a, that is a rule that you, are, uh, that you follow. No one just parks sideways or crooked in a straight parking place unless, well, you know, you're one of those folks. But we have all of these rules and regulations that we live by on a daily, consistent basis. But in the garden, they had one rule, one thing that they were not to do. Genesis 2, verses 16 and 17. The Lord God commanded the man, saying, You may surely eat of every tree in the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge and good and evil you shall not eat, for in the day that you eat of it you shall surely die. I, I can't imagine what that must have been like. You know, reason requires that, that God created man with a certain amount of factory-installed intellect. Right? I mean, Adam wasn't created with the same level of, of, of skill and ability as a newborn child. So, so we assume that Adam had the means to communicate, that Adam knew how to walk immediately. I don't know if he had a belly button or not. We'll figure that out when we get to heaven. But we assume some, some, some pre-installed intellect, some pre-installed reason. Adam, Adam was the smartest guy alive. Uh, and then Eve was born. And then they started arguing about it. <laughs> so God gave Adam this incredible liberty to learn about the garden, to taste of the fruits of its trees, 
Every single garden, every single tree in the garden was food producing. Adam and Eve must have had a limitless supply of fresh fruits and nuts. We can also, uh, we can assume that Adam realized and intended a garden. He realized that he could grow vegetables of different kinds. Uh, he only grew the good kind, though. Things like Brussels, Brussels sprouts clearly didn't arrive until after Genesis chapter 3. Yet in the middle of all of this liberty, there was just one restriction. Just one restriction. Don't eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Now, now the existence of this tree, if you're thinking through this, it raises an interesting question. Why didn't God just skip that tree? In the, in the planning phase, right? When, when he was laying out the trees of the garden, when he was figuring out where to plant the peach trees and the apple trees and the mango trees and the banana trees, when he was laying out the, the, the selection of fresh fruits, why didn't he just skip the tree of the knowledge of good and evil? Why didn't he just plant another nice pear tree right there? You see, God planted this forbidden tree because it was how Adam and Eve could demonstrate their fidelity to the Lord. In John 14, 15, Jesus says it this way, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. And that wasn't something new that Jesus suddenly came up with in John 14. That had always been true. And so for Adam and Eve, keeping their distance from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil was the way in which they could demonstrate their fidelity to the Lord. They met in the garden every night, and they took a nice walk through the cool of the garden. And as long as they followed the rule, as long as they stayed away from the tree, they were demonstrating their faithfulness, their, their fidelity, their love for God. Remember this, Adam and Eve were created in the image of God, which means that they were created as free, moral agents. They had the ability to choose to be disobedient. And, of course, we know what happens. Now, we don't know how much time has passed between God breathing life into man and man bringing death into the garden. There were no children born, and so we can assume that it probably hadn't been all that long. One would assume that a man and wife in the garden without sin causing dis division and strife, that in their condition that probably children were something that were going to happen fairly quickly. However, that was not the case. There were no children yet. So we assume that the fall didn't take very long. On that terrible day, the worst day in human history, Adam and Eve listened to the voice of the tempter rather than the voice of God. And though the text here describes this interaction between Eve and the serpent, let us not fool ourselves into thinking that this was Eve's problem, because Adam was right there with her, and he was just as complicit in the fail as she was. And so the skeptic might say, all they did was, was take a bite out of a fruit, that's all they did. They, they didn't, I mean, they didn't do anything morally criminal. They didn't kill somebody. You know, they didn't, they didn't steal something from each other. There was no one to steal anything from. But what they did was they violated the one law that they were given. 
The one restriction that they were given, they broke that law. So let us not diminish this and say all they did was take a bite out of a fruit. No, they did far more than take a bite out of a fruit. They broke God's perfect law. The one law that they could daily demonstrate their fidelity, they violated. And they took God's very good creation and they introduced death. Here's the thing. In this monumental event, in this, in this monumental fail, we have to see ourselves reflected. Because after all, the fall is a mirror. When we look to this day in the garden, we can't help but see ourselves. Consider this, our options for rebelling against God's authority have expanded over the years. We've got a few more moral instructions rather than the simple do not eat from this tree. Here's the thing, we couldn't eat from this tree if we wanted to because this tree is now guarded by an angelic guard. We couldn't go eat of the tree if we wanted to, but there's a whole lot of other ways that we can reject God's authority. Sin comes in a variety of shapes and sizes. We can rebel against God's authority with our actions. We can rebel against God's authority with our words. We can rebel against God's authority with our thoughts. Jesus said that you can have thought sins. As a matter of fact, we can even rebel against God with our motives. We can do the right thing for the wrong reason, and find ourselves on the wrong side of the sin equation. You ever done that? Well, Pastor, I did the right thing. Yeah, but you did it for the wrong reason. I did, I did something good. Yeah, but you did it for the wrong reason. At its root, there's, sin is no different. Because we understand sin is a choice. Sin is a choice. It is a choice to honor the Lord or a choice to rebel against Him. It would do us all well to simply imagine reaching for that fruit whenever we decide to go against God's rules, whatever that rule is. Sin is a choice, but sin is also a statement. It is a declaration that we know better than God. Adam and Eve... They fell for the lies that Satan told them. God had set the boundary for their good, but they believed that God was withholding something from them. The serpent convinced them that he was withholding something from them. If you just take of this fruit, you'll be like God. Well, they'd already bought a lie because they were created how? In his image. They were as like God as they could be and be a creation. They, were, they bore the very image of their creator. The serpent didn't have the image of his creator. God set that boundary for their good. He was not withholding something from them. And so with two simple bites, they made this bold declaration, God, our way is better. And when you choose to walk in darkness instead of the light, you are making a very bold decree. God... My way is better than your way. Try that the next time temptation knocks on the door and you choose to follow. Just stop in your midst and declare it to God. God, my way is better than your way. And see how that works for you. And every single time that we who are created in God's image 
choose to make that statement, we are reflecting the very same thing our first parents did. We demonstrate time and time again that the fruit doesn't fall far from the tree. If you're a parent, you do understand this. Parenting is a, is a hard job because your job as a parent is to set appropriate boundaries at the same time to help raise these little sinners that God brings into your house to, to help them somehow or another grow to realize who they are and, and what their image is. And so, and, and perhaps you've, you've experienced this. I know that the, uh, in the years of parenting that, that a simple thing like a, like a bicycle helmet. Why in the world would I expect my child to wear a bicycle helmet when he's riding his bicycle on a road? Because I understand that in the event that there is some sort of an accident, some sort of a mishap, that that bicycle helmet hopefully will save his eggs from getting scrambled. I understand that as an adult. It doesn't mean that I'd always wear a bicycle helmet because I can take responsibility for my actions. But I am responsible for my child. And so when I look at my child and say, where's your bicycle helmet? I don't need a bicycle helmet. You do. That's exactly what we're doing with God. God puts this, this protection in place that's for our good. It may be frustrating. I'm not lying that a bicycle helmet can be frustrating from time to time, but we understand that that bicycle helmet is, is for their good. Uh, the seatbelt is for their good, but it's uncomfortable. It doesn't matter that it's uncomfortable. The seatbelt is for their good, but they want to push against that. I don't have to do this. I don't need to do this. You're, you're withholding something from me. There's something about riding a bicycle with no helmet that I'm missing. No, it's really for your good. And when you take that helmet off and ride it your own way, you're saying, Mom, Dad, my way is better than your way. Until what happens? Until you need the bicycle helmet. We see our reflection in the fall. A second thing we need to understand about this, this passage is that the tempter's strategy, the serpent's strategy, the devil's strategy really hasn't changed uh, in, this, in this, these, these thousands of years of human history. He offers Eve a threefold consideration of why they should go ahead and take from the tree. Look at verse 6. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, that it was a delight to the eyes, and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and she ate. Hold your place in Genesis 3 if you want to and flip over to 1 John chapter 2. The Apostle John helps us to see this pattern so very clearly. Again, it's easy to miss, but the Bible helps us understand itself. And 1 John chapter 2 is phenomenal commentary on Genesis chapter 3. Over there in 1 John chapter 2, beginning in verse 15, the Apostle John gives the church, by extension us today, a very clear instruction. Do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. Verse 16. For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh, 
the desires of the eyes, and the pride of life is not from the Father, but from the world. The fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil wasn't off limits because, of, because it was inherently dangerous. Most people believe that it was just a regular tree that had a title attached to it. The fruit didn't necessarily have, have any kind of significant supernatural characteristics to it. The, the tree wasn't off limits because God was keeping something from them. You know, I don't want them to have this because if they get this, then the secret's out. It's not like the tree was, the, was where the wizard was hiding, that if they went and ate the fruit, that they would expose the wizard. You see, what temptation does is it challenges our understanding of why we think something is forbidden. And it does so by provoking these, these different urges in our heart. John says that for all that is in the world, the desires, some translations, and I like this translation better, or the lusts of the flesh is not from the Father, but from the world. What did Eve conclude about the fruit? She concluded that the fruit was going to be delicious, right? It was going to be good. You know, it's not like that, you know, that, that sour fruit that we tried the other day. You know, it, this is going to be good. It's going to be delicious. She reached that conclusion. Why? Because the tempter was, was stirring up and provoking the lust of the flesh. What's the lust of the flesh? It's those carnal urges. It's that carnal desire. This is going to taste good or this is going to feel good. That's a, that's a lust of the flesh at work. John goes on. He says, for all that's in the world, the desires... Again, lust of the eyes is not from the Father, but from the world. What did Eve conclude about the fruit? <laughs> it was a delight to the eyes. Man, it was pretty. It was pretty to look at. Lust of the eyes is really about our tendency to look places where we ought not look. Looking places where we ought not let our eyes wander. This is where sexual sin begins, by allowing our eyes to go to places that they ought not go. If you struggle with gluttony, your eyes will always go somewhere before your fork does. Always. I promise. Lust of the eyes. The tempter working right here in front of our face. Then John says one more thing. For all that's in the world, he went through the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, but then he says, the pride of life is not from the Father, but from the world. The pride of the life are, are those sins of the intellect, the sins of the mind. And, and what did Eve conclude about the fruit after the tempter, after the serpent had, had, had done his work on her? She concluded that if she just ate of the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, that it would make her wise, that she would be like God. She believed that if she just took of this fruit, that it would put her on the same plane as God. Well, listen, if that's not prideful, I don't know what is. If that's not pride, thinking that you're going to be in the same plane as God, I don't know what pride would be. 
See, here's the thing. You won't find a sin today that's not rooted in these three areas. Every addiction, every theft, every sinful click on a computer screen, every time temptation piques the curiosity in our eyes, that feeling in our stomach, or that idea in our minds. We've changed a lot since that disastrous day in Eden. Isn't it interesting, though, that our weaknesses remain unaffected? The serpent knows. He can just work around in that lust of the flesh and convince you that it's going to taste good, that it's going to feel good, that it's going to satisfy you. If he can work in that lust of the eyes and, and draw your gaze to that thing you think will give you utmost pleasure, or if he can work in that pride, that center of our heart that's connected to our mind and convince us that we think our way is better than God's way, then it's no wonder that we're so prone to the same failures as so many who've gone on before us. Because the one thing we understand about this tragic day in the Garden of Eden is that it did not stop with Adam and Eve because the fall, sadly, has infected the entire human race. There is not one among us who is immune. There is not one among us who is exempt. The Bible makes this point so remarkably clear. Romans chapter 3, verse 23 says it unequivocally. For we all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. We are sinners by our nature because of this infection, but we are also sinners by choice. The only one immune? The only one immune is the one born of a virgin, and his name is Jesus. His virgin birth meant that he was free from sin by nature. And the Bible says that he was tempted in every way, yet was without sin. It means that he was perfect in his nature, and he was perfect in his choices. When God gave him the law, he kept it to the nth degree. When given the opportunity to rebel against God's authority, he was successful in staying true while we were not. Which is why he was uniquely qualified to pay the penalty for our sins. And he's the absolutely only hope that we have as sinners is the Lord Jesus Christ. The only hope that we have is that we would receive the gift of salvation that He has extended to us through His death, burial, and resurrection. Men and women, there is no other hope under heaven. There is no other name given unto man by which man can be saved apart from the Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus satisfied the wrath of God that Adam and Eve provoked in the garden on the day of their failure. We can rejoice today that Genesis 3 is not the end of our story. Because it could have been. Genesis 3 could have been book closed. It's over. 
But we're so thankful that the end of our story is not found there in Genesis 3. The worst day in human history did not end in death that day for them. It ended in the midst of a terrible curse. Their eventual death would come. But the, the end of Genesis 3 gives us the promise that God will one day deal with the serpent with a particular son of Eve. We see the, the promise of God's redemption in the midst of sheer destruction. We have hope in the midst of terrible despair. And as the church today, we exist having tasted the blessed sweetness of this promised redemption. But this is where our journey through the Bible picks up next week. Would you bow your heads and close your eyes with me? God, as we consider the, the cost of the fall, first and foremost, we're grateful that it is not the end of the story, that you could have finished it then and there, Adam and Eve could have tasted death that day. But instead we find that someone else died as you killed animals to cover their shame. Blood was shed to take care of their rebellion. And God, in that act and in the promise that one day the serpent's head would be crushed, we see this glorious picture of what the cost of our sin would be and what you would be willing to pay that we could be forgiven. And God, this offer of salvation through the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ is such a compelling offer. It's, it's one that I don't understand how anybody who's heard it could ever reject it. Because God, the scriptures are clear. We are all in this room and we are all on the face of the planet, sinners by nature and choice. We sin with our words, our actions. We sin with our minds. We sin with our motives. We come up short so often. Yet there is a Savior who is Christ the Lord that would die that we might know forgiveness. God, there's never been an offer made like that before. And there's not going to be one like it ever again. And so, Lord, we know that in this room there are those who we understand our fallen condition and we understand Jesus is the only hope that we've got, Lord. At the same time, God, we understand there's some in the room here today who maybe they understand their fallen condition, but they're trying to work it out on their own. And, God, that ain't going to work. They're going to come up short. That's what the, the, the root word of sin is, is missing the mark. They're going to come up short every time. And, God... God, help us the day that someone tries to come before you and say, but look at all the good that I did. It doesn't matter. It broke the law. But there's forgiveness available in Christ alone. And so God, in just these next moments when we stand and we sing that declaration, God, would, would you move in hearts today that there'd be those in our presence today who would say, today is the day that I find salvation in Jesus Christ alone. 
that, that I can't earn it. I can't work my way there. But God, through your grace and through the blood of Jesus, I can be forgiven. And so God, when we stand and sing, would you stir the hearts of the lost in our midst? Would they feel that, that still small voice speaking their name, calling them today to new birth, to new life in Christ? We ask that you move now in our midst, in Jesus' name. Thanks for listening. If you would like more information about Chattanooga Valley Baptist, check us out on the web at cvbchurch.org. If you would like to join in person, we worship every Sunday morning at 1045. We're just minutes from downtown Chattanooga. We hope to see you soon.